everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Ideology. Mick Murray here uh, with Drew Stedman, back from all of his travels. So good to have you back, Drew. It's good to be back. Like I promised last week, as my wife and I did, a little bit of a pivot away from church history, talking about the impacts of modern trends in parenting on society today. We're going to go back to a look at church history, and specifically today, looking at creeds and heresy. And these are specific windows into church history at these pivotal moments of development along the way, different controversies that came up, how the church has responded to those, the councils both in reaction to, but then also proactive discourse and dialogue that's happened throughout the centuries to clarify the central tenets, the beliefs of the Christian faith. So huge, huge part of our formation spiritually as a a global body, and then personally studying our roots and our heritage and the thinking that went into this. Again, it is prudent for the church today to look back as we move forward uh, because there's nothing new under the sun. It's repackaged. Yes, we're, we're facing certain challenges today that are nuanced in that sense in, in them being new, but they're not fundamentally new. The deeper underlying questions have been addressed in the past. So Drew, why don't you get us kicked off? Let us know where we're going with creeds and heresy. So as we step back into the first few centuries of the church, there's a few major developments that were happening. I mean, it's such a dynamic time, but these are important to understand how our faith took shape. First, we have the disappearance of the apostles. Now, again, we are thinking about this from the perspective of the 21st century, but if you could actually go back in time and put yourself in the early days of the church, we have to realize what it was like to be a Christian at that time. And so I'm going to do a brief apologetic or maybe a pseudo-apologetic. Christianity started with a series of events. First and foremost, the event of Jesus Christ rising from the dead, but also the event of the church being filled with the Spirit and experiencing signs and wonders. And, you know, there, there are these different events where God was acting in and among people. And so the disciples and the early leaders of the church, these were not philosophical masterminds who were creating intellectual ideas and writings that they were then spinning to people and they were trying to influence culture through their great ideas. That's not how the church started. Instead, these were people that were reacting to what they saw and believed God was doing. And then as they were reacting, they were then trying to make sense of them. And just briefly to my knowledge, this is unique in world history. I'm not aware of other faiths that this is their origin story. You know, typically what you see is Maybe God dictating words to a prophet and that prophet then telling them to people or um, starting maybe with a philosophical concept or, you know, things like that. Um, Whereas in Christianity, we're actually talking about God intervening in the world in a dramatic way. And then people, they're kind of constantly on their back foot trying to make sense to what they saw God doing. So that, that then really influences the formation process of the church because a lot of the things that, you know, you think are pretty important as part of a faith of course, they were they were drawing from their Jewish roots, and those um, there's a very clear integration and overlap into the church. But they're also having to ask a lot of questions of now that Jesus has risen from the dead, and that the Gentiles have also received Christ and been filled with the power of the Spirit. What does that mean, and um, what does that mean for our ethics? What does that mean 
for our understanding of the church's role in the world. How is the church organized in light of that? How does the church relate back to society as a whole? How does a multinational or multi-ethnic church, sorry, national, wouldn't have been a turn back then, but how does a multi-ethnic church comprised of Jew and Gentile relate back to society when historically Israel had been its own country and then operated as a minority group focused on the synagogue based on ethnic Jews? You know, there's just a lot of very big questions that did not have easy answers. And so what you see is you see the disciples and the apostles grappling with this. And I think it's important to note there was a high degree of unity among the early apostles, uh, as best we can tell. And so there's um, the reference that Peter makes the Apostle Paul in Second Peter, and you know that's been challenged at times. I accept all of the traditional authorship and can get into some of my reasons for that later. But even if you go beyond that, you can see a lot of agreement. And for example, Paul and Peter, both in their writings in First Peter, and in Romans, articulate Christian response to government or things like that, you can see that um, there's clearly, at a very early time, there's a lot of agreement on some pretty big issues. But the way that this all formed, it was not, nobody started with a systematic theology. Paul did not publish a systematic theology. Peter did not publish a systematic theology. Jesus did not write a book. You know, there's nothing like that that just outlines in detail everything. Instead, We have letters, we have churches that are grappling with issues, and then you have the authority of the apostles are the ones who are helping to resolve this. And that's how the church took shape. So then what starts to happen is the apostles start to die. And uh, John, tradition tells us, was the last to die around 100 AD. And so this, this first wave of apostles, they start to die. And so they have their own disciples. So Polycarp is a famous church leader who you know, was still active maybe around 130, 140 AD, and he was a direct disciple of the Apostle John. So so even as late as, you know, maybe 150 or so AD, you still have people that were maybe one person removed from the eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus and his first disciples. But as they start to die, all of a sudden, there becomes this really big vacuum. And with time, with distance, that creates a lot of room for challenge. And the church experienced it you know, so internally they were losing um, the apostles, and so instead that's being transferred into writing, liturgy, tradition, etc. But then they also are facing internal and external challenge. So internal challenge is heresy. These are leaders in the church that start presenting ideas that are out of step with what had been passed down by the apostles, and then external challenge are pagan. So. Celsus is, is one early example, but others who were pagan philosophers that started to attack the beliefs of the church. And so now, all of a sudden, what had been these latent beliefs that the church understood but had never really formulated, all of a sudden are starting to be attacked, both internally and externally. And that forces the church to then clarify, what is it actually that we believe? Why do we believe it? And where did it come from? And that's the the creed formation, the canon formation. And then there's a third category that we're not going to get into, but also the clarification of the hierarchy of the church. So who are the people that get to claim that they actually speak for the church? In other words, if there's a heretical belief, why do we listen to one person arguing for orthodoxy versus another person arguing for heresy? And who gets to decide which is which? So these were all the massive questions facing this first generation of believers. Great. So you have you know these massive developments in the early history of the church. These first three centuries, you've got 
the formalization of the hierarchical structure that's centered on the bishops. You have these kind of early creedal, or these these attempts at kind of these early, early creedal statements of faith to iron out the writings of the apostles. And this was caused by the disappearance of the apostles. And, and then you had uh, in the absence of this clearly defined process that the apostles left, you have the church grappling with these with these issues, and so into this environment, you know, starts to arise some divergent thoughts on on some interpretations of Jesus' teaching and and Christian spirituality. So why don't you dive into some of the heresies and the emergence of heresy at this time? So I'm going to list out um, quite a few heresies that were common, and here's why I'm doing this: is that that some of the central principles behind these heresies are still very relevant in the world today. They're going to be a little different. So the ones historically, you know, where a lot of them were influenced by Greek thought. So they're not necessarily going to be carbon copies, but you'll find the underlying principles of challenging the Trinity, challenging the identity and the nature of Christ, accommodating to um, modern philosophies of the age. Those are the driving principles behind the early heresies of the church. And so it's actually fascinating to, to study the heresies and then to study why the church rejected the heresies can provide us with some really good insight as we tackle maybe more contemporary problems uh, that need to be addressed. Let me start with the big one from the earliest phases of the church that you may have heard of, Gnosticism. Some scholars even believe that the New Testament had started to address this, especially in John's writing, and um, you see this in both his gospel and in 1 John. Whether that's the case or not, it's probably hard to say. My personal suggestion is that there was some early ideas of Gnosticism, but it wasn't yet formalized. It was in the water, so to speak, but it hadn't really taken shape like it did maybe 50 to 100 years later. And Gnosticism is going to borrow heavily on Greek thought. And what it's doing is it's saying that there is this secret knowledge about God that was passed down by the apostles, but it's, it's not passed down to common people. It's kind of this secret way of understanding God and that um, you could eventually be initiated into. So it's really teasing and going after people who want to be a part of, you know, having this deeper knowledge or deeper understanding than common people. Um, and a few basic things that, as best we can tell, the Gnostics taught is that God was transcendent and he was so far removed from the universe that even physical matter is not a part of God. And this is, if you, if you know any Greek philosophy, you'll see Plato in this quite a bit. But where physical matter itself is, is evil, or at least is not, is not created by God, and that human beings, we are sparks of the divine that fell into matter. And so there's um, what's known as a dualism, where you have this transcendent, perfect God that's entirely spiritual and separate, and then anything that's created of matter, people or anything else, is inherently flawed not because of sin, like you might have understood in traditional t- Christian teaching, but simply because it's, it has matter. And only the spiritual is truly real, and anything with matter isn't. And so what salvation becomes is escape from physicality. So for us to truly be saved, we have to become spiritual. And how this got played out in the life of the church is, first of all, you have people that really have reinvented Christianity around some of this kind of Greek thought or Plato's thought. But secondly, you go two directions with it. Either on the one hand, you would really not take anything seriously about the body. And so just a Christian vision for human flourishing and life and the beauty of creation and, and all of that gets lost because none of that matters. Or what happened, as best we can tell, what a lot of other people did 
is because the body is bad anyway, it doesn't matter what you do with the body. So if you want to be sexually promiscuous or do whatever, it's fine because your body's evil and that's not really what matters. And you have this spiritual life that's separate and then do whatever you want with your body. So that was also really common. And it's this appeal to secret knowledge. So that, that was a huge heresy very early in the church. And it took quite some time for that to be clearly refuted. Yeah, interestingly, I, I'm not a scholar when it comes to Gnostic belief or medieval belief, but uh, I've been reading about kind of the 14th century and some philosophical shifts that took place in Western Europe. And I'm not sure if there was a connection between these Gnostic beliefs, but just as you're saying this, Drew, it, it makes me think of the shift in Western Europe from uh, metaphysical realism to nominalism where the medieval belief up to this time was that kind of everything was imbued with kind of divine meaning, but then that shifted to nominalism comes from the Latin uh, word nomen, which meant name, that, that mankind now has the ability to imbue meaning through, you know, what we assign, how we assign meaning to different things. And it created this kind of dualistic thought that contributed to the Renaissance, contributed to the scientific revolution, eventually the Enlightenment. It just makes me wonder out loud if there were any kind of Gnostic forms of thinking that influenced like William of Ockham in its modern day England in the 14th century and, and some other medieval philosophers to make that shift. I think there's a, I would probably present Gnosticism as a third way here. And if you picture this idea that God is transcendent, meaning God is above humanity, versus God is imminent, where God is within humanity. And what a lot of heresies do is they swing almost entirely to one pole or the other. So nominalism is where eventually the universe is what is real, and if there is a God, he is equated with the universe. So pantheism or panentheism are, are two different ways of saying that, two different nuanced approaches to that. And that is heavily influential in a lot of what is today known as liberal theology or process theology, where God and the universe are one. And um, there's really no distance between the two of them. And so God's present with us because we're in the universe and God can be equated with the universe. So that's one pole where God is entirely imminent. And then Gnosticism is God is transcendent where he's so far beyond the universe that it's hard to speak of him of even being present in the universe. And so you kind of live this dualistic life where my life in the body is lived by a different set of rules versus a spiritual life that I have that's entirely separate, but the two don't really connect together. And what Christian tradition has always taught us is that God is both imminent and transcendent, and we have to preserve both of those. We have to see God as being other beyond that God created the world, ex nihilo, where he's out of his breath, we are formed, and he's entirely above us. And because of, of God's character and nature, he chose to be with us, where God doesn't need the universe to be God. God is God without the universe. He didn't have to create us, but he chose us not because of a need inside of him, but because of his own freedom. And then he chooses to be present with us and can be known as a result. And therefore, because God is with us and he chooses us, then what we do in this life does matter. And it does assign meaning even to things that a Gnostic would have looked at and seen as entirely trivial. And so there's this swing and this pendulum. And even, you know, even when, we, when I've in the past talked about liberal theology, there's actually, you'll see it swing to both extremes. So I would say somebody like Paul Tillich, who we haven't ever talked about, um, but if you're familiar with his thought, he had such a high view of God as this kind of unknowable being that for all intents and purposes, there was no way to know God. He's just entirely out there, you know, and instead maybe represented an ethical ideal. But then you have process theology where God is so imminent. He's not really transcendent at all. 
but the end result of both of them end up being the same, that life functions without God. So that's, I think you're, you're keying in on a tendency in a lot of heresies historically that I think can be found in modern movements um, between God's eminence and his transcendence. Yeah, it's interesting that you say it that way. That's, that's really well put. And I think as I'm thinking ahead to what you're about to share on Marcionism and Montanism and some other heresies, they tend to, you, already, you said this one way, but to put it another way, they tend to revolve around these, these par- seeming paradoxes, like God's transcendence and eminence. I can see how heresies would spring up around that because that's a seeming paradox, hard to hold those in tension, this God that's completely outside of our experience, higher, we don't have language to describe, and yet is imminent and stepped into our world in such a visceral and terrestrial way and, and is knowable in that sense. And then, you know, the incarnation and the Trinity, and um, these are just deep, profound truths that are difficult to grapple with. So it's interesting that, that uh, as you pointed out, Drew, that a lot of the heresies crop up around these seeming paradoxes. So Marcion, he came along and his heresy is, you know, along with Gnosticism, one of the earliest ones, really as early as like maybe 130 AD. So not quite at the same time as the early apostles, but shortly thereafter. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to remove all Jewish influence from Christianity. So he tried to separate out Jesus and the church from anything related to Jewish history, what uh, we would refer to as the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, anything like that. So what's fascinating about Marcion is he, he actually developed a canon of scripture in the New Testament. And he's one of the very first people to publish a canon. And that does not mean that we got our canon from him. What it means is because he had an edge and an agenda, there was already probably an implicit canon of what churches were using and what he wanted to do was kind of insert himself and take that material but selectively edit it and publish it to advance his agenda, which was to make the church non-Jewish in its entirety. The gift he gave to the church is because he did this, it forced the church to respond. And so I, I just picture the church at that time. They had the letters from the apostles and and those were understood and considered to be authoritative and they were read in the churches and maybe one church had one set of letters and another church had the other, but there were some people who are familiar with a lot of it and just generally agreed upon it. But, you know, the church is moving and they're they're living life and they're doing ministry. They just never had, they were never forced into a situation where they had to actually look at those lists and say which ones are accurate, which ones aren't. So all of a sudden this guy comes along and he has his agenda and he's pushing it. He, he actually really helped the church because they saw what he was doing and they recognized that this was harmful. So the church had to then say, no, that's not going to be how we do this. And they actually started to list out. And it was shortly thereafter that we start to see some of the official first steps of the canonization process, which really weren't completed till much later. But some of the very early lists were his and those directly in response to his lists. Montanism is another very early heresy. And this one's fascinating, especially in our world. He was a charismatic prophet. And what he did is he claimed to hear directly from the Holy Spirit. And there wasn't anything controversial about that. In fact, up until he came along, it was very common to have these wandering prophets that would come to churches and minister, and they had claims of direct revelation from God, and that was widely accepted and wasn't necessarily seen to be a problem. But what he started doing was he rejected the teachings of the apostles and the bishops who had been appointed by the apostles, and he claimed to have not just revelation from God, but authoritative revelation in God that allowed him to trump other people. And so you think in modern times, we, we run into this, where if a prophet comes along, you know, in our 
charismatic belief system that we've talked about, we fully believe that God speaks to us, but we would say that that teaching needs to align with scripture and under submission to the church. And that's exactly what the early church said too. They didn't have scripture formalized at that time, but that was his heresy was actually what, what led to some of the hierarchy in the church because there needed to be some system of authority to say that, yes, we do believe that we hear from God, but that has to be tested and weighed against what God has already revealed, not just one person or one group of people's claim to hear something on behalf of God. And a, a negative byproduct of that was not because of anything the church actually said, but I think a fear of what he did. That is when we see one element of the charismatic dim uh, dimension of the church start to decrease, not just go away overnight, like I think some people think, but there seems to be a bit more of a hesitancy because of his sin. And I think of a modern example, I think that's a lot of, as we've talked about before, a lot of people's hesitation to the things of the Spirit is not so much what they come across in Scripture, but we just see negative examples of people taking it too far. And so that continues to have the negative effect of causing the church to hold back from one of the gifts that we've been given, which are the charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit, but it's this fear of people following the heresy of Montanus, which is to claim that they have superior revelation, which since the earliest days of the church, the church has always rejected that claim and confirmed that to be heretical. So why don't we shift to heresies specifically about the Trinity and about the nature of Christ, Arianism, modalism, Docetism, et cetera. So these, I'm gonna fly through these because if we go back to what we said earlier, you know, we have a continuum and heresies tend to be on the poles. So the two big, once we kind of got past those first ones and we start getting into the third century especially and fourth century and fifth century actually, now all of a sudden the major conversation is what exactly is the Trinity? We, we worship a triune God and we know that now and, and affirm that now, but at that time, you know, it's Jewish history, you know, uh, hero is Israel, the Lord our God is one. So what does it mean to have one God? But then all of a sudden we have God the Father, we have Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit. How do they all fit together? That's a major conversation. And then once we affirm that, what we have to move into is who is Jesus? Is he God? You know, I mean, there's a lot of statements that he makes and his actions that confirm that he is divine, but he was also a man. And that's also really clear. So how does that all play itself out? So these heresies, Arianism is the belief that Jesus was a created being not equal to the Father. There is another heretical belief that would say the same thing about the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit is not co-equal with the Father and the Son. So this kind of wing of the continuum is the thought that Jesus, the Spirit, they are maybe superior angels or some other type of superior being, but ultimately they are not co-equal or co-substantial with the Father. Semi-Arianism this is where they're maybe acknowledging that Jesus is divine, but not quite at the same level as the Father. And there is, in Greek, there's actually a one-letter difference of Jesus being of similar substance to the Father or being the same substance of the Father. So that became a big debate. So Arianism, semi-Arianism, and then modalism is the belief that God is one. And the tri Trinity represents modes of being God. And so, you know, there's a joke that goes around, a common way that parents explain the Trinity to their children is that God is like water and water is ice, steam, and a liquid. So it's in three forms, but it's one thing. That's actually the heresy of modalism, where what we're saying is that there are forms of God, but God is fundamentally one thing. And the teaching of the church is that God is actually three persons, not three modes of one person. Then lastly, 
there are other heretical beliefs that would swing to the far other side, and it would be uh, polytheistic, that there's actually three separate gods. That one never got quite as much traction because of the Jewish roots of the church, but that was also, um, people have tended towards that. So again, we have a trinity where on the one hand, you have one god and different modes of that one god or created beings under that one god. On the other hand, you have three gods. The church is trying to, to balance that tension of God being one, but one in three persons. The Nicene-Constantinople Creed, and we, we often refer to it shorthand Nicene Creed, but it actually took two church councils to hammer this one out. and was finally adopted in the year 381 AD. This built off of the Apostles' Creed, which is earlier, and what it affirmed is that God is one nature in three persons, or one substance in three persons, and that Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are all share the same attributes of, of deity, but they are three different people. And uh, the Nicene Creed specifies that God is begotten, not made, and of one substance. Uh, an easy way, and you know, obviously this is a very complex topic, but an easy way of thinking about this is one what, which means one God, three who's, three persons. So one what, which is God, and three who's, which are the persons as part of the one God. Obviously, that's a paradox. It's hard to wrap our brain around. And I'll just say, beyond what's affirmed in the creeds, when anybody ever tries to authoritatively tell me exactly what the inner life of the Trinity is like, I kind of nod and smile and say, maybe. What we can know is what God has chosen to reveal to us. And I think that is clear. And this is the witness of the church in Scripture and in the creeds, that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. And that all three of those share the divine nature, but they're all three distinct. We can know that, but... Beyond that, I, I think there we have, that's where, you know, as we've talked about before, there is an element of saying that God is God and we are humans and we are entirely dependent on God's self-revelation. And as hard as things can be to wrap our minds around, we have to accept that. And, you know, I, and I will also say, because God is three persons, it does create some really cool theological starting points in a lot of different areas. So I'll give one example. If we say that God is fundamentally love, but if God is not three persons, then that means God requires people to be God. So let me pause because that's hard to wrap your head around, but think about it. If God is love, love has to have an object of its love. And so if God is only one, that means God actually can't be perfect unless we are there for him to love. But if God is triune, God's love is expressed eternally through the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for the Spirit and them sharing that love, then what God does is as a free will act, not because he needs us so that he can be love, but because out of the love that's already present in the, in the Trinity, God chooses as a free will act to create us to be participants in the divine love that already exists. So you can see, you know, as, as much as this seems like arguing and splitting hairs, which at one level, it can be. I mean, I think there are some very essential truths that Jesus loves us and that God created us and he's for us, then it's awesome. But if we, if we want to develop the resources of our faith further, um, there is a lot of beauty into understanding why it's so important that God is one God in three persons and what that creates and what that allows for us to develop. Great. So that's that's the Trinity, which is, yeah, even as you're talking, Drew, it's just, it starts to make your head hurt, you know, just this mystery of three simultaneously uh, existing as one. But the same can be said of Jesus's divinity and his humanity, the, the incarnation, the doctrine of the incarnation. 
And this was a huge question that a lot of heresies sprung up around. And so it forced the, the bishops and the major players at that time around the Mediterranean to come to this council of Chalcedon or Chalcedon to wrestle out uh, what is the essential nature of Jesus. And uh, this was the mid-5th century. And I love this quote from J.I. Packer on the incarnation. He says, here are two mysteries for the price of one the plurality of persons within the unity of God, so we've been talking about in the Trinity, and the union of Godhead and manhood in the person of Jesus, the incarnation. He says, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. And, and essentially, they had to wrestle out, you know, how can Jesus simultaneously be divine, where he never had to learn anything? He is omniscient, <laughs> omnipotent, all the omnis, and yet had to learn obedience through what he suffered. And yet, you know, he's sitting at the well in, in Samaria, and he's thirsty, he's tired, and yet he, in his divinity, he never tires, he never thirsts. In his humanity, he hungers, in his divinity. And both of those are simultaneously true. And essentially what they came up with at the Council of Chalcedon is this kind of five-fold, uh, or these five tenets of the incarnation. And each one of these is a podcast in and of themselves, but just to breeze through it, they affirm that Jesus has two natures. He is both God and man. Secondly, each nature is full and complete. He is fully God and fully man. Third, each nature remains distinct. They don't alter one another's properties. They don't mix into some kind of third nature that's not, that's kind of like that partial Arianism that you were talking about earlier, Drew, that's neither fully God nor fully man. Fourth, that Christ is still only one person but with two natures, just like the Trinity is one God with three persons. And then fifth, things that are true of only one nature are nonetheless true of the entire person of Christ. <laughs> and again, there's seeming paradoxes embedded in each of these tenets, and we could go through uh, the different scriptures attached to this. But this was a, a huge just point of declaration because Jesus' divinity and his humanity are both essential to the, the biblical narrative around salvation, justification, everything else that we think of as orthodox belief actually depends on the doctrine of the incarnation. Yeah, where this becomes such a big deal, you know, one of the early church fathers said, what Christ has not assumed, he cannot save. And in other words, what he's saying is because Jesus became fully man, we are able to rejoin the life of God. And so he assumed the entirety of our human nature, which then enables us to once again participate in the, into the life of God that God created us for. And, and this is where the doctrine of the Trinity and the incarnation of Christ weave together. And I will say, as complicated as it may sound, the more we study it and the beauty in this and the foundation it provides for so much else, it is complex, but it's so amazing, so beautiful. It leads to so much worship, so much reflection, and I think provides a foundation for a lot of our most fundamental questions really comes in this nature of God and then God becoming one of us that he might save us, that we might once again be joined into this dance of the Trinity and into the life of the Trinity. And so, yeah, if we were to take, you know, what we said about the Trinity earlier, we said it's one what and three who's. What Chalcedon is saying is that Jesus is one who and two what's. So the Trinity is one what, which is God, three who's, Father, Son, and Spirit. Council of Chalcedon is saying that Jesus is one who, so one person, one member of the Trinity, but with two natures, two what's, that he is both fully divine and fully man. So just as there were heresies about the Trinity and the kind of swing on the one hand where the members of the Trinity are merged into one, 
which is Arianism and other heresies like that, or modalism. The other side was tritheism, where there's actually three gods. So you picture a pole, and what what the church is, is contending for is that middle ground that God is one God in three persons. There are also heresies about Jesus, where on the one side you see his divinity, and on the other side you see his humanity. So I'll just fly through a couple of these, but you can maybe see where some of this controversy would come into play. That The one is docetism, that Jesus is God and only appeared to be a man. And so on that one, they're advocating for his divinity, but they're calling into question his real humanity. And they're just saying he only appeared to be man. Second one is adoptionism and that Jesus is a man who God later adopted. So this one is focusing on Jesus's humanity, but they're actually saying that he wasn't really God until God chose to adopt him. He wasn't eternal with God. This one comes into play, you'll still see this quite a bit today, especially with a lot of forms of liberal theology, where they're saying that Jesus is a man, maybe a God-conscious man, maybe the best man there ever was, more aware of his relationship with God than any other man. They'll use very flowery language, but ultimately they did not believe that Jesus was fully God, co-eternal with God, who then became a man, but they'll instead believe that he is fundamentally a man who kind of tapped into um, his divine potential. The third heresy is monophysite, which is that the natures of Jesus merged, and so his humanity and his divinity merged into a third something. And Chalcedon was specific. It had these clauses that the nature of Jesus is without confusion and without change, so he is fully God and fully man, not a third hybrid. And then Nestorian is that Jesus is actually two persons, and his humanity and his divinity are kind of separated out from one another, but maybe inhabiting one body. And that gets very confusing. So you see, though, you see where there's heresies come into play is these continuums that get challenged. And I would say most of these find pretty consistent modern expression. And so it's, it's good for us to be aware of. But the gift of heresy, and I know that's a really funny phrase, but the gift of heresy is it led the church to clarity. And I'll just say this as a pastor, a lot of our life is spent doing ministry and being about the purposes of God. And we have things that we know to be true, we believe to be true, but often it's not till they get challenged that we have to dig deep, put pen to paper, get around other strong believers, wait on God together to then affirm the clarity. There's a lot of things, even in our day, that I never would have thought 10, 15 years ago that I would have to dig as deep as I have to get to clarity. So I'll give a modern example that we've talked about before is a Christian belief in gender that you know, we see this throughout the tradition that there is this affirmation of gender as a binary thing. There are male, there are female. And that's been pretty common. And that's that has never been seriously challenged up until very recently where there's this idea of gender fluidity. So we haven't really had to, so we haven't. But now that that's being challenged, what's going to happen is a more robust version of an articulation of what it means to be a binary aspect of gender of male or female, that's going to have to emerge. So it's the challenge forces us to dig deeper into our heritage. And, you know, we have 2000 years of the church doing that. So a lot of those questions have been answered over the years, but it doesn't mean that more won't pop up. So I think in the same way, the heresy actually leads to deeper theological reflection. And this is, if I was just going to pause, I know it's so easy to get lost in all of this. And for some people, as they learn church history, it can confuse us and maybe maybe even concern us or sow seeds of doubt because you realize just how complex this process is. What I love about this is that we serve a spirit 
and the Holy Spirit is able to even use heresy to lead the church into truth. Like, just think about that. That heresy became the very means by which the church sought the leadership of the Spirit to affirm truth. And just in the same way, we can say that the Spirit used persecution to advance the gospel so that the gospel spread to the nations. And most likely, if it weren't for persecution, the church would have stayed centered in Israel and Galilee. If the if it weren't for heresy, who knows? The church may never have written down the creeds or affirmed a canon because they didn't feel the pressure of it. But because of persecution, because of heresy, it actually led the church into clarifying truth and were the beneficiaries of that. And I think that for me is really helpful because things that come up over the years that are really challenging and painful, and I mean, these were very painful processes for the church to endure, they became such a rich heritage for future generations to stand upon. And so that gives me hope in our own struggles that we'll see that for the future as well. It's great stuff. A lot to chew on from today. I know a lot of this is might seem really heady, or if you're a seminary student or Bible scholar, it's probably, it's probably not for you. But for a lot of us, uh, there's a lot to chew on here and to think about. But such a, a critical series of topics to know about and to be connected to our past, to understand that we, again, are the, the flower that has its roots in these um, these issues that it got wrestled through with such care and concern over many centuries. And so uh, hopefully this has been uplifting and, and insightful for you today. And we are grateful for your ongoing listenership. Continue to send in your questions or thoughts. It's so helpful when we receive feedback from you. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you next week on Ideology. few things that, you know, I already said a few things. <clears throat> there were two major pressures that the church was facing. First, or actually maybe, <laughs> dang it. <laughs> I'm rusty, okay? I'm rusty. I'm rusty. <laughs>